Hey, what's up? Mr. Bill here. Before you listen to this podcast, I just wanted to plug some of my dates. I'm doing January 11th in Philadelphia, 17th in Montreal, 18th in Providence, 24th in Detroit, and 31st in Denver. And remember to rate, comment, and subscribe on whichever podcast app you're listening to. Uh, thanks, and enjoy the talk. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you are listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Hey, you're 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 listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. testicles all right welcome to the mr bill podcast hey it's uh, episode 16 with squanto very cool thanks yeah. for having me man yeah of course feels weird to be like welcome to my podcast when we're like in your studio <laughs> and in your house it's my podcast now dog <laughs> yeah you ask me some questions oh is that how we're starting yeah <laughs> how does it feel to be mr bill that's pretty sick. All right, next question. <laughs> no, I, I want to talk about, um, <clears throat> I think the first thing I want to talk about is the touring thing because yeah. you had like a mental breakdown from touring and now you don't want to do it anymore, right? I wouldn't call it a full mental breakdown. It's more of like a, a gradual mental breakdown and, and gradually building resentment of, of touring as a concept. Uh, but I, I really wanted to, to quit for years once I realized that touring is pretty, pretty fucking mids. Mm-hmm. When uh, did, so when, when did you start touring? I started like playing international shows and touring more or less full time or started doing it full time in like 2015. Mm-hmm. So like in 2015, were you doing as heavy tours as you were doing in say like 2018 or 2019? No, no, of course not. I mean, those were the, the, the good old days, the beginning days when I first started hitting the underground dubstep circuits and like, uh, you know, Montreal, Paris, Australia, Paris. Yeah, yeah. Paris is popping. Well, I, I don't, I, I don't keep up with the Parisian scene much these days. But back in the day, it would be like all the underground U.S. dubstep guys go play in Paris before they started catching on in uh, America. Interesting. Yeah, um, but yeah, I didn't really start touring full time to like, I guess, kind of realistically, twenty seventeen. That's when my schedule got really blunted, and and really since about then, like, like coming out of that sort of initial glow up or blow up phase you know that 2015 into 2016 i was like whoa 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 this is crazy there's so much stuff happening i never thought music would go this far and then then once i was experiencing the reality of like a full-time touring schedule i was like i don't know if i like this and then and then you know the whole momentum thing it's it's hard to put down uh but i finally managed to do it so huzzah yeah so 2020 no shows no shows on the docket. That's correct. Okay. So what, um, like how would you differentiate just like a casual touring schedule from a really f- like powerful full touring schedule? Like what was your schedule like, say over the last few years, what was your general like lifestyle like? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the main difference, I guess, between lighter and more intense to, to me, it's the cycle, uh, uh, the, the, the cycle the, or the, the oscillation in between your bus tour and your festival season. Uh, and that's that's really what creates the toxic cycle for me, at least, because um, your manager's like, oh, okay, I got you the bus tour. You got to go on the bus tour. You, you know, you're not getting paid as much as you want, but that's going to build your profile so you can crush your festival season dates. And then you got to try try your heart out on your festival season dates so you can have enough of a profile to go on your next bus tour. And it's it's always just like leapfrogging from one goal or thing to the next. And it's just like that toxic cycle. It's like, Oh, I finally have a month or two off, but I I have this looming, you know, my next tour is already in my mind. And it just, for me, it felt like I just couldn't escape. I could, I never had any downtime. I could never just be like, Oh, I'm a human. Wow. It was always just like constant stress dubstep simulation that I found. I mean, maybe it's just how I am personally, but I I found that to be most displeasing. (laughs) Yeah, right. So like um the bus tours would generally probably happen in the spring and the fall and then festival stuff would be mostly summer, right? Yeah, there's there's like two cycles for bus touring. It's usually either the the early winter cycle, like the November cycle or the spring cycle and then festival seasons in in summer, obviously, or summer fall. Right. So for you it just felt like um 
you're constantly grinding on one tour just to make the next one better and then grinding on that just to make the next one better and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people see it from the outside and they go, oh, wow, that's that's so cool. He's living on a tour bus. He's playing festivals. All these people think he's cool. That must be the sickest thing ever. But maybe it's just because I'm kind of more of an introverted person or something. I mean, I, I really value comfort and like privacy, which touring doesn't have a lot of. Um, but uh, I, I'm just lost my train of thought. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> uh, some, something about people thinking touring is cool, but it's not actually that cool. I don't know. So I, um, I've mentioned this one guy on the podcast now at least two or three times. It was a dude who commented on the Dirt Monkey episode because mm-hmm. Dirt Monkey was saying the same thing. He's like, man, fuck, touring is exhausting. And someone commented, they were like, um, oh man, what a piece of shit for like complaining about this touring thing. It's like I work in a factory and then when, you know, literally I just work in a factory all day and then at night I go home and I'm tired and I have to go to sleep and then I have to wake up at like 6 a.m. the next day and go back to the factory and like fucking this guy gets to tour and fuck him. Yeah, I mean... What do you think about those people who are... <laughs> what do you think about that, Cunt? Uh, <laughs> yeah, what do you think about that particular YouTube commenter? <laughs> I, I always find that kind of thing funny um, because, I mean, as we say, the grass is always greener on the other side. You know, it, you'd be surprised about the amount that a lot of touring DJs probably fantasize about having a normal job or, or a normal life sometimes. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I would probably be fucking bummed if I was working in a factory too, but you know, no one should ever run their mouth unless they've actually DJed and done DJ simulator. Cause they don't know what the fuck they're talking about. Yeah. It is pretty difficult. Um, it can be, yeah, it doesn't have to be. It just is easy for it to get out of hand for me at least, you know, for sure. Yeah. So one thing that I've found is like how skewed your uh, perspective can get and how skewed your, uh, uh, what would you say? Like you're, um, like for instance, you know, you might be getting paid $2,000 for a show one night or something. And sometimes like a thought will run through my head of like, I would almost like prefer not to get this $2,000 just to be at home right now. Yeah. And just to be chilling. <laughs> Feel that. Um, which is a crazy thing to say, because it's like, if you had had have asked me or if I had have like, you know, been making that choice 10 years ago, I'd be like, what are you going to, someone's going to pay me two grand to p- to play a show like on the other side of the world. It's like, fuck yeah, sign me up. Yeah. But once you've been doing it for a long time and and all of that, yeah, it can, <laughs> it can get easily skewed. But I always, like your mentality can get easily skewed about it and you can get a little bit like... um Jaded. Yeah. I, I am self-proclaimed extremely jaded. Yeah. Um, it's, sure. it's true though. I mean, it, it really is interesting how many perspectives there are on it because like, yeah, you know, home, homeboy in the factory, I'm sure he wishes he was DJing, but maybe he hasn't done enough personal exploration in his personality and he doesn't realize that the social aspect of it would be mentally crippling you know because that, that's what people a lot of people don't realize like traveling to play music seems really cool but the the social media or the or there's just the social or public aspect of it like you, you do essentially have to live your life semi-publicly and become a trained monkey you're like hey guys i'm gonna be here here and here djing please come to my show please buy my tickets and it's like that just the mental aspect of it for me is is what makes the money not worth it in the end you know like getting $10,000 on a platter is nothing if it's driving you insane, you know? Yeah. I also think a lot of people think of it as just like a on off thing. They're like, Oh, you know, it'd be really sick if right now I could play a show for two grand. And it's like, yeah, but you can't, it takes a long grind to get there. And then once you're there, you're like, fuck this. Right. Right. (laughs) Not, not, Not necessarily. I mean, not everybody is like that, but it is like, yeah, there's definitely, it's, it's difficult to, to just look at it that way and be like, Oh, you know, I could just, be playing a show right now for that amount of money and like forget about the whole grind process up to that. Totally. I mean, and again, I, I think most of these arguments or even these conversations literally just stem from from people being ignorant. You know, people love to talk about what police should do or what the military should do or what any other profession except their own profession should do. But no one really has the authority to talk about something unless they have personal experience doing it. Or, or, or not to say they don't have authority, but their opinion doesn't matter. If they don't know what they're talking about, that you could say, oh, DJ should be more grateful. But it's like, well, dude, I mean, you know, you, sh- you should try it first before you start telling other people how they should think and feel and act, you know? Mm, I like um, I like Shank Aaron's view on this. He's like, uh, if you're caught complaining three times as a DJ, you should be forced to go work a 12-hour shift at Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, a lot of DJs would have a lot of their time taken up by Taco Bell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think the entire DJ workforce would actually be working at Taco Bell for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I try and sometimes I definitely feel um 
like a piece of shit because I'm like complaining about stuff that seems generally pretty easy to do. I mean, traveling Fuck is em. fucked though, man. Honestly, traveling is bad. I don't think you should be traveling that much. Like, I don't think the human body is supposed to go in the sky that often. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's higher, higher elevation, low oxygen, uh, you know, really, really dry. You're literally exposed to significantly more cosmic radiation and like random solar energy. That's actually energy. not true. Is the, it not the, true? The radiation thing's not true. We, is, we, how could it not be though? Because the atmosphere is thinner up there. Wouldn't, wouldn't more particles be getting through? So all I know is we like I talked about this on another podcast with somebody uh-huh. and a listener fact checked it and then posted in the Beleagle Immigrants group on Facebook <sighs> being like, nah, man. Savage, savage. All right. Well, that point was wrong. Yeah. But then, you know, being in a flight tube with that many people, they're all coughing and sneezing and farting. Yeah. It's a giant tube of farts. And and just and the posture thing, man, just having to sit like that and, and you know, being tired and sleeping on a plane and fucking up your back. I mean, not that that's the worst problem to have, but it, it really does add up. And, and that stuff seriously fucks up your body over time that's true yeah i did so the last few weeks i did seven shows and my body is pretty fucked right now yeah not gonna lie yeah you hate to (laughs) see it (laughs) yeah i I definitely hate to see it um yeah so do you prefer doing the festival fly tour stuff or do you prefer the bus tour stuff i I would i would definitely say i have to prefer the flights interesting yeah everybody says they like bus tours more but uh bus tours seem more chill because like you go to sleep at night and then you wake up already at the next venue. It's like it removes such a huge process yeah. between the two shows. I just I just don't like the extraordinary lack of personal space on the bus tour. It's like if you're it's you're, true. you're basically living in the world's smallest apartment with 10 other people for like two months. That's a good point. And if you don't have really good chemistry with those people, it's excruciating. I've, I've had bus tours with amazing chemistry and I've had bus tours with suspect chemistry and... <laughs> The latter is is not my favorite. It was very mentally grating by the end of it. I was, mm. yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I've only ever done two bus tours and both of them were with Beats Antique. Yeah. And they're all really nice people and the chemistry was pretty good. So I, my experience with bus touring has always been good. Nice. But yeah, I can, and it was not two months. I did one run with them that was like 14 days and then I did another one which was like 10 days. So I haven't done like the long. Yeah, stint see, that's yet. uh that's a nice taster package. That's that's something I could tolerate. Yeah, you know, but the the two or the three month blunt is just it's it's fine. Well, maybe that's the favorite. maybe that's the th- problem is that you just grinded, you ground way too hard. Yeah, it's that's for sure it. And then, I mean, I, you know, I, I study various things about communication and psychology or metaphysics or whatever and i i think the what i what i've personally feel is the truth about why i have a hard time with a djing career is because it doesn't really align with my values like i, I really enjoy the music and the art uh especially djing and and production especially combining the audio visual like there's a reason i do it there's reason i've been doing it for 10 years you know and then it just decide i wanted to be a dj and like, poof there we go like oh sick job guys like i got into it as a hobbyist and and i stayed in it as a hobbyist and it happened to turn into my job um but what I what I didn't know when I got into it is what the scene was like. I just found dubstep music and I started making it. And I was like, this is so cool. I'm a, I, I was a bassist, you know, I've been a bassist since like the sixth grade. And I was always obsessed with getting effects pedals and trying to make my bass sound as meaty as possible. Basically like analog dubstep. And then I discovered old school like Rusko and, you know, Datsik and all that old stuff. Like the, the super OG like 2009 to 2011 dubstep when everyone was like, oh, what's this? Um, and I thought it was so cool and, and I was really frustrated with playing in bands at the time and I just got into making dubstep and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then like when I started working in the scene and I, I, I figured out or started sort of seeing what the scene was like and what the, the patrons are like and what concerts are like, it, it's pretty apparent that the people who make the music and the people who, who listen to the music generally tend to have very different values. And, and, you know, not, not to say that dubstep producing dubstep is some crazy, crazy woke thing, but like, I don't really relate to most ravers. You know, I, I don't go out and rave in my spare time. I like, I like to stay home and make music or skateboard or read books like that. That's what I do. You know? So I, there's just some sort of weird divide in me where I don't feel like morally fulfilled producing music for like this economy or, or this group of people just because I know there's other people out there who are way more in alignment with my values, you know? Right. So why, <clears throat> why not just produce music for not ravers? Oh, uh, it's impossible to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just mean like I, I resonate more with, uh, you know, 
yelling about politics or, or metaphysics or mm. or teaching people or, or, or doing extreme sports. Like that's the kind of stuff that really motivates me to, to be human. I my my favorite thing in the world is extreme sports. Like that that is what I live for, you know. And I do love music and I do love dubstep, but it is one of my secondary passions, you know. Right. So yeah, I guess we can talk about extreme sports. So you were into uh, downhill skateboarding for a while. That is correct. Way back in the day. That shit sounds fucked. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I always say it's pretty chill. I, I got into it just as like a, a putter, if you will. I got, I got, I, I, well, I discovered longboards on the internet back in high school and I was like, oh guys, check this out. We got to get these. These look so fun. And I basically, I convinced my whole friend group to get longboards and we would all just cruise around and, you know, do the high school thing, smoke weed and longboard, whatever. Um, and then gradually we discovered that longboarding was also actually downhill skateboarding and you could ride them down hills and do slides and stuff. And I, I had to convince all my friends to, to get into sliding and doing downhill because they all, they all wanted to do like lame putt tricks. It's called dancing where you like walk around on the board and stuff. Um, but eventually that kind of snowballed into this whole thing where the, the longboarding industry slash the downhill industry sort of took off at the same time where all my friends uh, got really into it and we were making videos and stuff when we all started picking up sponsors and riding for different companies, you know, getting free boards, wheels, whatever. Um, but then there was kind of like this bust in the industry. Like the industry had this huge bubble and longboarding was really, really hot for a while. And then it was just kind of, I, I mean, I guess there wasn't enough people interested or, or you, I, I think one problem with the longboard industry is that you don't break the shit as much. So people buy it and they don't need to buy it again for five years. So at one point the industry just completely collapsed. And and that's actually where I, I when I started getting more into DJing. So I pulled out of it for a while, but, uh, you know, I, I had a, I was very vaguely internet famous for longboarding in like 2012, 2013. Nice. But we're getting back into it these days. You know, the, the OG homies are still going strong team mids shout out team mids mids world order. Uh, all the homies out there killing it. Uh, we got a bunch of people running great companies in the industry, uh, a bunch of insane riders repping a bunch of great companies. So yeah, shouts out teammates. Nice. So now you're finished with touring and stuff like that. You think you're going to get back into downhill skateboarding? A hundred percent, man. Yeah. I've, uh, I, I've reconnected with the scene out here, uh, blessed to be out in Utah. Absolutely. Some of the best terrain for downhill skateboarding in the country and, uh, longboard Jesus himself, Dylan, uh, Hepworth lives out here. And he's fucking insane. Like commonly agreed upon as probably the best downhill skateboarder for for the free ride discipline, which is, you know, doing more flowy trick lines, but but going really fast and doing slides. So I, I'm really blessed to have been able to reconnect with the scene in such a good place with with such skilled riders to uh to to work with and to train with. So I, I'm very much hoping to, you know, I, I don't really want to do it professionally or competitively, but I very much want to be an extreme sports content creator just because I love to skate and I love to make videos and I like inspiring people, you know, um, one thing that I feel, I don't know, it's, it's a weird moral gray area, but people like really glorify being producers, but we basically just lock ourselves in a room with a computer, (laughs) which, which isn't really healthy. So I kind of want to try to counteract that a little bit and and glorify, you know, the extreme sports life, because I think it's really cool and it's really healthy and, and, and fun and good for you mentally. So I just kind of want to inspire people to, to do cool things. I mean, I think you can be a producer and be healthy though. Like I know producers that have good lifestyles and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that in the slightest. I'm just saying producing for 10 hours straight is intrinsically unhealthy to some degree you know yeah i don't know a lot of people who produce for 10 hours straight a lot of the time though yeah it's like hopefully most people don't (laughs) yeah it's like how many times have you got a 10 hour session in maybe like 50 times in your life yeah yeah. i don't think i've done more than a 10 hour session of riding more than 50 times in my life the fact that you're even throwing out that 50 is very impressive (laughs) yeah i usually my riding sessions are pretty short these days they're like like a solid chunk of like three hours nice and then i'll just not write for the rest of the day or something or i'll take a break go do crossfit or some shit and then come back and do another three hours at night or something but actually i haven't been writing at all lately because uh i've just been well i did shows for the last few weeks and then before that i was in australia and then now i'm packing up my house and driving to san francisco which is why i'm here actually yeah yeah very cool (laughs) shouts out mr bill for the visit 
yeah. out here in Utah. Yeah, Utah's sick, man. I, I really like the mountains and stuff like that. I I, I uh, firmly believe it's probably the most beautiful place in the United States, or one of them. It's like top five, you know? It's kind of, yeah, it feels like geographically what Denver thinks it is. Yeah, yo, that's exactly what I always say. People, people are like, oh, Denver, dude, the mountain's so sick. And, and you get in Denver and it's like this kind of a piece of shit looking city and the mountains are all, all the way <laughs> over there. And then Salt Lake is all clean and beautiful. And then the mountains are right there. It's super cool. That's true. But also the music scene in Denver is like insane. Oh yeah, of course. It's, you know, easily one of the best in the country. Salt it's Lake is for crusty like, at best. Oh yeah. For, for, well, I, <laughs> I don't know. Um, f- for experimental electronic music or just like the weirder sort of beat driven stuff or the darker dubstep stuff or whatever like denver is i think the best in the country the wook bass genres yeah yeah yeah, pretty much <laughs> like all the all the crusty wook shit all the crusty wook bass belongs to denver have you ever been to the black box i haven't actually that's that's Dude. one of the venues that i really want to go to i've you should heard yeah. nothing but good things about the sound system it's so sick yeah it can hit a very low c with no Oof. problem Oof. <laughs> Is that a function rig in there? So it's function tops, and then the subs were built for the room. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So they, yeah. they probably designed it perfectly. <clears throat> yeah. So I think it's um, the base couch crew or something like that. I, Key, I always forget the guy's name, but I always talk to him when I'm there, and he seems to really know his shit. The guy who like built the subs for the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, super nice guy. And Nicole's super cool, too. Like the the, the lady who bought the place and... She used, does she still do sub dot? She used to do sub dot, right? Sub dot mission, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So this place that she bought, the black box, it used to be a venue called Quick Sodies or Quick Quixotes or however you say that shit. Quixotes. Quick Sodies. I don't know. <laughs> it's it impossible was, um, to say. Yeah, it's impossible to say. Literally, uh, it used to be a called Quick Sodies, and it used to be like a deadhead bar like a just a grateful dead jam band bar sounds suspect yeah yeah so she bought it and transformed it into this insane electronic music venue which is sick that's awesome yeah yeah that's that's low-key one of my dreams i i've you know probably probably at least once a week or once every two weeks i start fantasizing about my dream venue <coughs> you know i'm just obsessed mm. with like sound systems and and visual production so i think it would just be the funnest thing ever to to go in on that so Last, like a uh, lot of money and a lot of pain in the ass you know mm. i want to do it like once not not all the time. <laughs> yeah, don't start venues all the time. Start a venue like once. Start no, start the venue once and then like make other people run it and then I'll just go there and be like, "Hey guys, can we can we play like a low C for 30 minutes straight?" All right, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I was here, you were talking about how you wanted to build a door, like a DAW. Oh, yeah. So how um what f- for you would be the things you would add like to your your ultimate door? Like what would be the things that you would have in there that say like Ableton or Reaper or Bitwig or something doesn't already have? Right. Good question. So the underlying vision here is actually more of a multimedia conquest than it is just audio production. So in a lot of ways, it would be similar to Ableton in that it's uh, it, the goal would be to have it be a premier production software that also crosses over really strongly into the live realm. And the underlying uh I guess problem with current available software that's driving my want for this is pr- pretty much just bad multimedia integration. Like if you want to do a multimedia set with time-coded visuals, interactive stuff, like, like, you know, controlling stuff in real time with MIDI, both in the audio realm and the visual realm, you have to start hacking stuff together. I mean, for, for my mega chop sets, fr- frankly, the, the hoops that I had to jump through to, to achieve those is, not my favorite. I mean, you know, we could do it. I I, I did it um, with, with the help of a pretty good team. You know, great. So you're um, if I were to guess, just like sending MIDI or OSC or something from Ableton to Resolume to sync them. Correct. Yeah. Mm. So so everything is sequenced with MIDI from Ableton, and I, I'm mm. routing it using Copperland. It's going back and forth between all the programs, and I have all my MIDI controllers. Like the DJM mixer is split out to go into you know, three different outputs. So it outputs MIDI to Ableton, Resolume, and Touch Designer at the same time. Uh, But then because of the nature of the Megachop, the actual Megachop visual comes from Touch Designer, uh, which needs the live audio to generate the waveforms. So then I have to uh, use Jack Router, which is like an inter-sample ASIO. uh, Well, it routes audio in between programs uh, within one sample. Uh, So then... So, so basically, it's four programs to generate the result that I want to create the Megachop, right? And, and, and because they're not designed to work with each other, they're usually just standalone programs that people have enough technical issues with them. As standalone programs, you can imagine the, the type of stuff you start running into when you start using them in a meta way. And I, I've personally broken Resolume 
more times than I care to enumerate on. Like uh, when I was doing a full tour prep uh, for my Mega Chop tour or the tour that I was running full Mega Chop sets on with Boogie T, uh, the Strike Back tour in 2018, it was right when Resolume 6 came out and, and I was going pretty much as meta as you can, like extremely detailed sequencing, thousands and thousands of MIDI triggers per Resolume set all coming out of Ableton. And I straight up just broke the program. We, we essentially did probably at least 30 or 40 hours of, of free bug testing for them, except it was on a deadline for a tour and I was tearing my fucking hair out. But, but basically the underlying thing that I want out of a, a truly next level DAW and performance software is complete audio visual multimedia integration. Mm-hmm. So I want to be able to do video control, uh, live 3d stuff, a la touch designer or notch. I want to be able to control DMX for lighting. I want to be able to control lasers. I want to be able to send out control voltages. I want to do anything. I want the world's most flexible, multimedia performance environment and, you know, coupled with really good audio production software. And I have this vision as well for like a 3D work environment because, you know, we all love Ableton, but one of my beasts with Ableton is that it looks kind of flat. It looks kind of boring. And I think that if your DAW looks more inspiring, like I I would love to see a DAW designed for high-end workstation or gaming computers that has full GPU acceleration, is fully designed to take advantage of really powerful computers and can do you know, crazy DSP on the graphics card, just crazy 3D accelerated work environments that just make you f- feel interesting and cool when you're making the music. I mean, that's a huge project, but it's something I think about from time to time. Yeah, I feel like fruity is really pretty. Like, yeah, pretty yeah, I always say that. Uh, the workflow makes me want to die, but the the plugins and the synths and the aesthetic of it are super cool. Yeah, like the uh, EQ with all the color banded flashing and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. It's really cool. It's just got that swag to it. Yeah. And the Fruity Dancer plugin. It's the most lit plugin. That's the only thing Ableton is truly missing. Yeah, Fruity Dancer. We need the Ableton Dancer. <laughs> what would the Ableton Dancer look like? Like a uh, boring German businessman. <laughs> <laughs> Just like doing his taxes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just coding Ableton. Nice. Um, <clears throat> do you think it would ever be possible for a computer to write music like AI? Um, yeah. Okay. What makes you think that? Mm, Okay. Well, and I guess like to what level, like, do you think it would be possible for a computer to just spit out a Squanto tune? Well, it would have to be like a machine learning algorithm and you'd have to feed it all of my music and then it would like try to approximate it. But I I guess we'd have to make the distinction. Like what is AI is AI, like a machine learning algorithm, or are we talking about a purely self-teaching AI? Yeah. Yeah. I guess machine learning would be the way. Yeah. Yeah. do, Do I think, a machine learning algorithm could could spit out really good music. Yes, it'll probably be different. I mean, we've all seen that Google, uh, whatever it's called, like the the deletion generator where it makes everything look like DMT. That that's just what machine learning does. It, it just creates weird kind of artifacts. Could it ever sound totally human? Maybe. But I, I think you could make like what what would be more realistic, I think, would be like the formula generator, right? Because there, there's all these uh I, I forget the names of them. There's all these music theory terms that pop music basically abuses like certain chord progressions and certain ways to resolve the melody. Like you could literally make a music formula generator that just generates catchy music every time, but to, to take it to the next level and be like fully creative human music to some degree. That's impossible to say though, as always. <clears throat> yeah. The way I think about it is just um, about the amount of finite stuff that exists in music. Like we we don't like much outside of a pretty limited range of stuff. That's true. So I feel like it's pretty easy to. I mean, who's who's to say the computer wouldn't try to write a song entirely in the fifteen to twenty k range? You know. Yeah, maybe the computer's just like this is what humans want. <laughs> this is human music. <laughs> 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 it just recreates the dial up time. Yeah, yeah, literally. <laughs> <clears throat> um. So now that you're not touring, you're doing skateboarding, but you're also teaching, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Um. So I've always like, even if it's not music, I've always really liked to teach. I mean, even if it's not literally like I love giving, there is the microphone. Um, I I love giving advice to my friends and I like explaining stuff to people. And I I really have like a passion for communication. Um, And I happen to meet somebody who runs a music school in Salt Lake City. It's called Salt Lake DJ and Production. You can look it up on the internet. Um, And I was like, hey, you know, I have this skill set that I've developed. Uh, a lot of people are in the education scene. Not everyone has gone as deep into the touring and like the business aspect of it. So like, sure, there's way, way many producers out there, many of whom are much better than me. 
But I decided to give it a go just because, you know, I, I do have all this industry experience uh, as well as a, I would like to think a pretty decent production skill set. And I have this passion for communication. And thankfully, I really, really, really enjoy it. So um, I'm working on getting, you know, a pretty regular uh, class schedule filled up at the school in Salt Lake. And I've been doing some online classes and uh, I find it really enjoyable. Like it's just really fulfilling to me to be able to help people meet their goals. And this actually ties in heavily with what we were talking about earlier with the divide between producers and, and ravers or you know, the fans of the music, I, I might get pissed off at ravers a lot of the time, but I, I generally usually almost always vibe with other producers. So I, I really like working with other producers and I love communicating and I love teaching and I love feeling like I'm helping people. So I've been like super stoked on teaching. Nice. I guess we didn't really talk about what the mega chop actually is. Uh, we, I talked about it with Patrick on the dirt monkey podcast. You're talking about the mega chop, huh? We're talking about the mega chop. And then we also were talking about the octo chop. Ah, yes. So, so how, how did the, I know the mega chop is basically where you have four channels running in from Ableton into the mixer, right? Mm -hmm. And then you sort of just like mess with the faders to play different parts of different tunes at different times. Yeah, so I mean, sort of like in your live, your live cutting between four dubstep tunes, basically. Yeah, I mean, well, so I, I can give you the full abbreviated history of the Mega Chop. Um, I used to like I discovered Double Drops. I forget when, like twenty thirteen or twenty fourteen, maybe. And I was so like, so explain what a double drop is because it seems like everyone has a slightly different. Uh, there's there's definition. only one definition, and that is playing two songs at once. Okay, so DJing. No. Because <laughs> it means you're playing two drops at once. You're layering two drops. That's a double drop. You know, most okay. most DJs will play two songs at once during the transition. Okay, yeah, But, true. you know, a double drop is just like two drops at once to try okay. to make something cool. And you basically, I think the idea is to try and find one drop that's like really simple and then another drop that sort of complements the simple one or something. Yeah, I mean, there is no rules. But, but generally, you know, a lot of dubstep double drops will, will kind of go along the lines of one song has a lower, more mid-range bass. And, you know, the classic dubstep double drop is like a mid-range dubstep song uh, with like a whistle tip bro step song, you know, and it just sounds cool. It's like... Yeah, yeah. Just so players. do you think um, something like Peekaboo would be super good for doubling? Because it's just like... Could be. Got one of those big low mid basses. The the only issue with Peekaboo's tunes and, and double dropping is that his kick pattern is a little uh, more interesting, for lack of a better term. You know I mean, the, the reason rhythm is a genre is because it goes boom, clap, boom, clap. And you can pretty much double drop any two random rhythm songs and they'll usually sound good together. But when you start double dropping tunes that have more interesting drum patterns, it can start to really shit the bed. So if you were big braining and you like matched up two songs that had similar kick patterns, I think that would be awesome. But that's like, uh, you know, a bit big brain. <laughs> right. So you got in, you figured out double drops and then. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so here was the turning point. I, I, I figured out double drops and I started just making tons of mashups and I was like, Oh, whatever. If my mashups are sick, like it doesn't matter if I'm double dropping live because I have, got these badass mashups and I'd play out some local shows and the shit would go off and be like, yeah, mashups are sick. I love double drop mashups. <laughs> um, and I mean, I knew that I, I peripherally peripherally knew that uh, four deck mixing was a thing. Uh, but I, I had this massive, massive epiphany when I saw a gentleman's club play live in 2014 and I saw them just going ham on the four decks. And I was like, Oh, that's why like that's why you do it live. And I saw how much energy it had and how much fun they were having. I saw them chopping up the faders and I was like, that's it. I'm doing it. Uh, pretty much next month, I invested in a really crusty four deck Gemini CDJ 700 setup, and I, I started grinding away, learning four deck mixing. And that was like 2014, 2015. Then I did my first Australia tour in 2015, and that's like when I. That's like the first time where I feel like I, I started to get good and actually give out the hammer with my sets and. That that tour had a really good response. That first 2015 tour in Australia had a huge response. Everyone was freaking out. They're like, "Cool, oh, double drops." Um, and I started working on a studio mix at the at towards the like the last week or two of that tour. I started working on a studio mix, and I, I just started having fun. I was like, "Well, what if I don't constrain myself to four decks?" And I started doing all these triples and these quads and experimenting with like really intense layers. And um, I, I learned how to DJ in Ableton. So I had this epiphany. I was like, "Oh." I, I could mix like this live. So, so that's kind of where the idea of the mega chop came from. I just realized that I could do this. I call it kind of meta mixing, you know, just playing way too many tracks. Every drop is a double drop or a triple drop or a quad drop. And I realized that I could create a performance template in Ableton that would allow me to do exactly what I would want to do DJing instead of being limited by four decks. 
And then that eventually grew from there where I would work on it, create more. Because the Mega Chop started off, originally it was pretty much just all triples and quads and it was all about layers and just like innovative switch drops and like kind of faking out the listener. And it, it, it was a lot, actually a lot less about chopping, uh, even though I called it the Mega Chop just because I thought it was a cool name. Branding. Uh, but it started off more as a layers thing just because I really liked, you know, multiple layer mashups. Uh, but then over time, I started developing it more into like that a really aggressive, constant quad into quad mega chop egregious add mashup style and and then from there you know we eventually evolved the visual tech and the the visual aspect of performance that people know it for today but it was a gradual evolution that did actually stem from my four deck cdj mixing and over the years i've gotten so much flack for it people are like dude it's a mega chop it's not even mixing live i wasn't doing it on cdjs i'm like dude i literally created like a, a quad drop cdj routine on my gemini's and fucking like 2015 shut the fuck up dude i pay my dues like let me do what i want i'm just trying to make <laughs> cool art you know yeah, so you're basically playing four tracks out of Ableton into a mixer and then chopping between. Yeah, well, Ableton is so cool just because you can you can do whatever you want with the audio routing. So so the way I have it set up, there's actually closer to like, I have it set up like one through four A and one through four B. So that's how I can mix a quad into a quad. And so then that, that would be an octo chop then? Well, no, no, that, that's just for my standard mixing. So I have one through four A and one through four B. And then you, Which gives you eight channels. Eight channels. So you can mix four into four. Mm-hmm. And then I have my my octo chop group which is one uh again one through four uh one through four a and b but then those are midi mapped so so the mixer is set all to through right but then you can midi map the ableton crossfader to the djm crossfader and then when you slap the the djm crossfader back and forth it'll swap in between those two groups of four tracks so that's how you can do the actual live octo chop uh okay without eight faders right okay that makes sense because yeah i was talking to patrick about that and we we're both thinking about like how that's possible to do and i thought you maybe like had two mixes or something like that or i've i've often wanted to do the two mixer mega chop but i mean mm. you yeah know. you could have like two laptops two mixes and then have two ableton sessions on link or something yeah yeah um i i I often joked about the DJM 9000, which would be the hypothetical eight channel version of a DJM 900 mixer. But, uh, you know, I don't think too many people are in the market for that. So maybe someday, maybe when I make my own DAW and performance software, we'll make the uh, one tech 9000 advanced DJ mixer, mega (laughs) chop mixer. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Very cool. (laughs) Um, Cool. Uh, Let's talk about conspiracy theories. Oh, man, here we go. Yeah, let's go down the hole. So you're massively into this thing called Deep State, which I don't understand. And every time you explain it to me, I get slightly more confused about it. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, I mean, so I've been, uh, I guess, into this quote unquote stuff for like years and years and years. I got red pilled on 9-11, like way back in the day and I freaked out. I was like, oh, my God, because I was I started experiencing like chronic depression and dissociation in high school and I, I couldn't really figure out why like I kind of just gradually had this decline into vague like mental existential doom and I was like well, why why is everything horrible why is the world so vaguely bad like why is everything dark and creepy and scary and I, I mean I, I don't know I just attribute it to my mental struggles at the time but then I discovered conspiracy theories specifically 9/11 I mean that's a lot of people's first Eureka moment. Yeah, it's like the gateway conspiracy. It's the gateway because it's so obvious, you know, it's like we don't even have to talk about that when everybody, anybody who's looked into it for more than two seconds with an open mind is like, "Mm, yep, definitely an inside job. And the details thereof are fascinating. But once I discovered that, it, it, it opened my mind. I was like, this is it. This is why the world is fucked. Like, this is why I can sense this sinister sort of doom and everything. I mean, I'm sure there was other factors playing into it as well, but it was like, I knew it was the truth, you know, not only because the facts point to it, but um, it's just explained so much like, oh, everything really is a lie. There, There is truth that they, you know, the government, whoever is trying to uh, keep from us. Um, and, you know, the, the contemporary term that everybody is using these days is the quote unquote deep state. But that just means the same thing as the Illuminati or the shadow government or the new world order. They're all synonyms. You know, it's a, it's a vague term for the idea of the secret government that controls the world. Okay, so you think like the governments that are in power on the front end are not actually controlling the world? Uh, I mean, it, it's it's all a front. It's all a front. You know, it, any way you cut it, even on the most surface level, it's obvious to see that banks and corporations and the military industrial complexes of countries are obviously what's pulling the strings and guiding their actions and guiding their politics and, and everything else. And we kind of have this 
glossy veneer. It's, it's not even glamorous. I won't front. Like we, we just have this shitty politics simulator where we put one side against the other who secretly just want the same fucking thing. And everybody just yells at each other instead of taking the time to realize that it's actually the military industrial complex fucking them in the ass. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty apparent that there are power structures that go far above and beyond uh, the, the quote unquote government of any one nation. Not to say that the governments are completely fraudulent. Like, yeah, yeah, your local town government's real, your state government's real, whatever is real. And, and, and even most of the high-end federal government in most countries is actual normal people who are trying to serve their country to some degree or another. But it doesn't take too much. You know, you get a few corrupt people in here, you get a few spies in there, you know. Uh, and and the the this has been going on for thousands and thousands of years, so it's, it's systematic, very secretive, very, like, well-planned corruption that's generally orchestrated by secret societies like the Freemasons or the Roscrucians or, you know, stuff like that. There's all sorts of them, really. Right. Uh, Yeah, and you run a Discord server where everybody talks about this stuff? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I I try to start discussions about this shit on on Twitter and social media a little bit, and uh, it it goes surprisingly well most of the time. Um, But as we know, there's, like, serious uh, trigger warning subjects. Like, if you mention the word Donald Trump and you don't say fuck before it on EDM Twitter, like you're going to have someone coming at you like yelling racist bigot. And it's like, well, you know, we live in the country that's this guy's the president. We need to be able to have conversations about this where we're not just accusing the other person of being horrible. So the goal of the discord was to have, I guess, uh, to have a safe space for discussing sensitive ideas. And we talk about, you know, Donald Trump, religion, politics, everything all the time. And it's actually really awesome. It's become a really nice community of, of people who can talk about sensitive ideas that usually make people blow their gaskets without getting angry at each other. It's pretty by, awesome. By sensitive idea, do you mean the idea that Donald Trump might not be fucked? Yeah, or even just being able to, like, like you don't even have to talk about whether or not he's he's good or not. It's just like, you, you can look at someone's policy and be like, oh, Donald Trump did this thing that is helping arrest more pedophiles than any president has ever done ever before. And someone's be like, oh, well, will you like Donald Trump? Huh? 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 What are you, a racist? Like, no, 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 no. I'm just pointing out that he's he's done a thing that's actually kind of good, but nobody's talking about it. You know, it, it's it's literally just a forum to discuss these ideas. And yes, I personally don't think Donald Trump is as bad as everybody says he is. Do I think he's a good person? Uh, most likely not. But if, you know, you pay attention, it's, it's pretty obvious to see that... Uh, for whatever reasons, the media is trying very, very, very hard to make people hate him for pretty much whatever reason they can think of. They, they keep inventing new ones. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Well, I think like him and his whole crew or whatever just seem to do the most fuck shit all the time to the point where it just seems like that's normal at this point. They've like normalized fuck shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, but, but, so I checked out of politics for a very long time. Um, I didn't follow the politics simulator really at all. I kind of checked back in this year and, and the, the, so I, I had a theory, like I, I was just as displeased as everybody else when orange man won. Uh, I was like, Oh, this doesn't seem good. I'm sure the world is going to end a nuclear Holocaust tomorrow. It was nice knowing you guys, uh, you know, and, and then that continued to not happen. And then, um, when like that, oh, hold on, I'll, I'll say this. So, so, so I, I had a very normal opinion of him at first. You know, I was like, this guy seems like a dick. He's probably going to fuck our country up, whatever. Um, But I always had this gut feeling. I was like, all right, this guy's a billionaire. I'm pretty sure he's acting like an idiot to distract everybody so he can do whatever he wants behind the scenes. And I still believe that to be the case. So I I, I will say this 100%. Don't make the mistake of thinking he's a moron. He's clearly not. He's made us so much money. That's not easy to do. People are like, oh, you got a loan for a million dollars. Yeah, it's not easy to turn a million dollars into $5 billion. That, that doesn't just happen overnight. So my, my, my whole thing is that I think he acts like, like you said, creates a permanent shit show to make everybody just like yell and be triggered and, and lose their shit so he can go make policy behind the scenes or funnel money to his friends or whatever the fuck he's doing. Nobody really knows yet. But um, there is a lot more to the Donald Trump simulator than meets the eye, literally just on the policy level. Like people are always like, well, he's such a dick. How could you even suggest that he might be normal? I'm like, well, if you look at his policies, he's done a lot of really cool policies. So okay. I, I just tell people to do the research and actually have an open mind. You know, don't, don't fall prey to the orange man, bad simulator because it's not helping anybody. You know, we got to be able to have conversations uh, in, in a society. If we want to have a real country or a real society, it's so important. Yeah. And, and and people just don't want to have conversations these days. That's well, the disturbing I could, part. I could see how that would cause a problem on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I've I've gradually tried to to allude 
to the concept that people need to have a more open mind about Donald Trump, but I don't really push it too hard just because EDM is so aggressively like Democrat slash liberal leaning. And I, it's, it's just not worth my time <laughs> most of the time. Yeah, fair enough. So you built a little safe space where you can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's my little safe space. And it, it, it's cool to be able to go really in depth with a bunch of people who are pretty knowledgeable about metaphysical subjects and like split hairs about what the Old Testament means or, or talk about ancient mythology and, and, and how this stuff relates to each other. And I, honestly, I have some really woke people in there who drop crazy knowledge all the time. And it's like, it's dope. Nice. So you talk about the Bible a lot? Yeah, yeah. From time to time, I I, I think the Bible is fascinating uh, personally, and it, it's it's weirdly uh, relevant to to modern times. Um, Bill Cooper is a really famous guy in the conspiracy slash truth community, and he he was one of the first guys to. Okay, so he he's done a lot of crazy stuff. Um, he predicted nine eleven before it happened, and then got subsequently murdered by the FBI. So he's pretty legit. He also discovered that income tax was fraudulent and sued the federal government for. Uh, supporting an unconstitutional organization being the IRS. Uh, but he, he went really in depth with the study of secret societies and the occult and all the principles that these people followed. And his statement, which I think is really profound is that these secret societies are either obsessed with following the Bible and like recreating the book of revelation or the book of revelation is an actual prophecy and we're in the end times now. And I, I thought that was really, really interesting. And uh, people don't always realize this, but our, we, we like to think we live in like this sort of scientific modern world. And a lot of us do in the Western world, but the root of pretty much every conflict that we have today is religious in nature. So it's, it's really interesting to me to study a religious text to try to understand the nature of religions so I can understand or try to understand you know, why the Middle East is the way it is, or why is Christianity like this, or why does Judaism like this? So I, and the Bible, you know, it's, it's very obfuscated and very fucked in a lot of ways, but it has a lot of fascinating stuff. And especially the old Testament and the old Testament's fucking weird. I am convinced that book is straight up about uh, aliens interacting with humans and fucking with the human species. Yeah. Right. So like, what's an example of a part of that book that makes you think that, uh, specifically about the old Testament being about aliens. Yeah. There's a lot of different gods. Well, I haven't I haven't read it yet. I, I'll I'll be the first to admit I haven't I haven't read the Old Testament yet. It's on my to read list. Um, but there's a lot of different stuff. Like there's there's various different gods. You know, like Moloch is one that comes up a lot in deep state discussion because it seems apparent that a lot of these uh, secret society cults worship Moloch, who's an ancient Canaanite god of child sacrifice. Um, so he would demand like child sacrifices, and they would bring in babies and burn them, and it's like that doesn't sound like a loving god maybe maybe that is a direct metaphor for uh humans interacting with a really fucked up alien i mean it, it could be different but that that's my personal opinion on it or it could just be a guy that likes to kill children <laughs> it, it could be a random guy who likes to uh rape and murder kids but he is he's depicted as a giant uh like anthropomorph and what's the word anthropomorphic Anthro is that like a spider no, 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 no. It's like, it's like an animalist or like an animalized uh, human figure. So he's depicted as like, you know how they... Uh, oh, dude, do you remember those books, Animal? Yes, dude. I love that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever read one? Yeah, I read a fuckload of them, bro. I didn't read any animals. I read some Goosebumps back in the day. See, I'm on the opposite side of the aisle. I never read any Goosebumps, but I read quite a few Animorphs. That shit slapped. Those were good books. Nice. It's like cheesy B-grade sci-fi. Loved it. But yeah, uh, so there's actually a famous book or a semi-famous book in the truth or conspiracy community or whatever. It's called The Twelfth Planet by Zechariah Sitchins, which is where Twelfth uh, Planet, the dubstep artist, gets his name. He, he loves all this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's it's a little bit controversial, but it's really interesting because the whole premise of the book is that it's a scholarly reanalysis of the Old Testament, viewing it as if it were a scientific document and then comparing all of that with ancient Sumerian and Mesopotamian cuneiform tablets. And he basically proposes that, uh, like, you know, basically what I was saying, that the Old Testament is actually a direct metaphor for alien interference with, with the human species. It's really interesting. I mean, nobody knows for certain, man, nobody was alive 10,000 years ago to, to verify whether or not this is true or false. But, you know, when I was a kid, I remember, like, I, I wasn't raised religious, and I remember learning about the Bible and stuff in sixth grade. And I learned about what it was. And I, I always knew people killed each other over it and fought wars and argued about it all the time. And religion was this big controversial thing. And I just remember it was really striking. 
still is even to this day. I like, I remember learning about what the Bible's about. I was like, this is what people are arguing about. Like, this is so mm-hmm. random. It's like a random story. Like why, 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 you know? So I guess this is sort of my ongoing quest to understand why the fuck people are so upset about the Bible. <laughs> I think like probably the reason why most people are upset about it is just because of how it makes people behave post Bible. (laughs) I mean, yeah. People who read it and subscribe to it and believe every part of it and take it very like literally. It's certainly not meant to be taken literally. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody agrees on that one. Yeah. Right. But I mean, if you do, you can, you know, there's certain parts of it that I believe say stupid shit. Like, you know, if your wife is found to not be a virgin on your wedding day to take her down to the local church. Fucking killer, bud. (laughs) Stoning her to death or something. It's it's also really important to remember that the the Bible was was written by, I mean, pretty much as soon as the Bible became a thing, it was a tool of power. It was a tool of obfuscation. Um, I mean, it it seems to me like from the very beginning, like the, the Bible was basically giving them a little bit of whatever the truth in it may be and then and then trying to manipulate it so it would give power to the priesthood, you know? So we've been dealing with that for literally thousands of years too. So whatever's in the Bible now is probably not what's supposed to be in there. Or maybe it is, was just a really fucked up book to begin with. It's impossible to say. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'll have to read it. I have never read it. But apparently it is uh, totally legal to steal a Bible from a hotel room. Really? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I will, I will gift you with this task. You have to steal every Bible from every single hotel room that you're in for the next year and then post it on Instagram and see if you get arrested. You just have like a giant pile of Bibles. <laughs> Be like, look what I did. <laughs> and then tag your local law enforcement department and see if they do shit about it. <laughs> well, I mean, probably the law is different in every state. And if I'm traveling around to a lot of different places and I steal all the Bibles, I'm probably traveling Bible thief, Mr. Bible. <laughs> yeah, then I'm probably arrestable in a bunch of cities, but not in a bunch of others. That's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Well, I got to know, how do you feel about conspiracy theories? I know you're often skeptical. Uh, I just don't think about it too much. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, that's an admirable strategy. I wish I thought about it less sometimes, but you know, mm. you gotta do what I'm, you gotta do, man. I just think I'm a pretty basic person. <laughs> I just don't think too hard about most things i truly believe that some people are just generators of content yeah like that's your purpose you just make super sick art absolute content generator absolute (laughs) sick cunt of a content generator (laughs) yeah that's possible yeah Yeah, that's impossible to say we're literally generating content right now we are generating content right now isn't that fascinating uh yeah very cool why do you think people like podcasts um, like, why do you think people would want to listen to this conversation? I I think I truly believe that the reason podcasts are so popular and we always hear this uh, term long format discussion, it's because social media is so social media is literally designed to dehumanize us. Like, look at Twitter, for example, you know, it used to be 140. Now it's 280. But you you can't have a real conversation with somebody using those constraints. It's It's fundamentally dehumanizing and designed to reward concentration and like trying to dunk on people or trying to flex on people or trying to be funny or mean or something. And, um, you know, people feel this on a, on a base level and people see how, how really important discussions have devolved into name calling and just pure hatred and like, no, fuck you. No, fuck you. No, the Democrats are right. No, the Republicans are right. No, people, people realize that ideas are complicated and they, they want to hear them what they want to hear people talk about them. You know, you could, you could sit down and talk to someone for 12 hours and still not know even 1% of what's about them, let alone, you know, try to change the political landscape with a tweet. We all, you know, we all try that sometimes. I try that sometimes, but I I think the rise of uh, podcasts is just because people want to hear people talk in a human way. And most of the time, social media is very inhumane. Well, that's, that's partially why I wanted to only do podcasts in person, because I think communicating over the internet, even if it's through like a video chat. Mm-hmm. Or even especially through like yeah tweets or comments on Facebook or email or something like that, it's very easy to dehumanize the person on the other end and treat them badly. Yeah, and the conversation is yeah, it's never as real as if you're having it in person. But I think the reason why people like podcasts is because people are communicating so much in that way these days that they sort of crave like real communication. And yeah. it's also like they're just trying to seek that out and listening to two like or, or more other people talk 
it's kind of like something to be in awe of at this point of society <laughs> isn't that fucked up man yeah it's kind of fucked. it's like wow two people communicating normally this is incredible <laughs> yeah this is fucked <laughs> can you get a load of this get a load of this guy they're fucking they, they have they they disagree but they don't hate each other whoa <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's wild and, and man yeah it, it for sure is like i i do see that culture is starting to return to like wholesome values we kind of like you know, it's all about experimentation, but I feel like society was kind of going off the deep end there for a second. And and yeah. now we're sort of starting to come back to normality a little bit, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think society's going in a pretty good direction personally. Seems normal enough. Yeah. So you just switched back to a Blackberry from a smartphone. That is correct. Um, why, why'd you do that? Uh, I mean, to, to put it bluntly, I, I really truly believe that smartphones are like the absolute embodiment of evil. Um, I don't trust big tech in the slightest. I don't trust big telecom in the slightest. I don't trust the technology that are in these phones in the slightest. And I mean, nobody's arguing about how addictive phones are. It's, it's a serious epidemic. I mean, like we're all pretty much of the right age where we saw it happen. We used to live in a world with no smartphones. And then I remember I was in sixth grade or eighth grade or something. And I saw the first iPod touch and I was like, whoa this is crazy. That's the coolest thing ever. Like touchscreens are so cool. And fucking 10 years later, man, everybody's won't look up it's just on their phones, on their phones, on their phones. And, um, uh, it's really, really, really concerning to me. And it was really, really, really even more concerning to me is just how fucking addicted I was to it. And I know damn well how evil it is and how badly it's affecting me. And it was just so addictive that I just couldn't, it like totally took over my brain and maybe I have a fucking weak mind or an addictive personality. Both of those, I would certainly say, yes, I, <laughs> I do. Uh, have those problems from time to time. Uh, but yeah, man, I think the smartphone thing is fucked. I think wireless radiation is fucked. I think Wi-Fi is fucked. I think that like wireless radiation is going to be the smoking of our generation. And I mean, you know, people are already freaking out about 5G and we haven't even researched the long-term health effects of, of Wi-Fi yet. And, and there's a, stark, a startling amount of research that points to Wi-Fi being really, really unhealthy. And we've all heard the stories about living under high tension power lines or near, near a cell phone tower. Like this shit's not good for you. We humans are, are, we're electrical beings, man. It's, it's not good to have all these wireless signals in the air, just going through our bodies. So I, I, essentially what I'm doing right now is trying to prototype, um, escaping from the matrix. So I got rid of my smartphone, no social media, no entertainment on my phone. Um, I'm trying to use ethernet and no Wi-Fi as much as possible. When I get into my next place, uh, I'm trying to just do ethernet runs in the whole house. Um, I encourage everybody to get off their phones. I, I think we're about to see a huge anti-technology revolution uh, on the surface level because of the social, uh, negative social and emotional and mental effects. Like, you know, suicide, young adult suicide specifically is an enormous epidemic right now. And everyone's like, oh, it's, we don't know what's going on. Like, why is everybody killing us? That's fucking social media, man. Come on. Um, everybody knows. Well, I, you know, think- it's part of it. It's the digitalization of society and everything else. But like, it's, you know, let's be honest, it's a huge part of it. And, uh, I, th- I think what's happening is like tech is such a new and interesting thing and you know we're technological giants but you know as in terms of like using it we're kind of infant so <laughs> yeah, i think for real. at this point in time we're just as a society really obsessed with it but i think over time we'll just grow a more mature relationship with tech yeah i i would agree i mean as as you know i'm i'm conspiracy minded so i'm very i'm not gonna say paranoid but i'm of the mind that there is probably some sort of very dark conspiracy behind the smartphone deployment. I personally think it was a militarized, uh, very precisely deployed mind control project. That's just my opinion. So I'm like, well, get out while you still can, you know? Um, but I also agree with that. You know, we, we are in the honeymoon stage of, of technology and it is so powerful and it's so easy to misuse and abuse that we're, we're very much going through the growing pains of that right now. And I hope we can figure it out because technology is awesome. Like that's the reason why we're doing this. That's the only reason we know each other. Super grateful for it. But right, like, it's the reason why this like talk can then reach thousands of people. Yeah, I just I just don't like the phone zombie <laughs> thing, man. The phone zombies scare me. <laughs> right. So, you, um, how long ago did you get rid of your smartphone? Maybe like a month, month and a half. Okay. And have you noticed like a upswing in mental health or anything? Oh, like? oh yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. it's 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 night and day. I feel like I'm waking up from a long sleep. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Right. And not to say that my life is now perfect. I feel like I'm now a lot more able to like notice and deal with my mental issues that are way easier to suppress when you have a phone around you all the time, you know, cause it's like, 
well, man, if you don't have a smartphone, you kind of just have to sit there and, and, and lie in bed with your thoughts. You know, wherever you have a smartphone, you can just be like yeah, YouTube until the end of time. yourself with the information. Yeah, and, and it's just, it's it's a constant feedback loop. You, you can literally forever ignore your mental trauma if you have a smartphone. Like, yeah, you, you never point. have to be alone with yourself if you have a smartphone. Yeah, that is a good point for sure. All right, cool, man. Well, that's about an hour of talking. It's probably as much as I want to do and as much as people want to listen to. Well, it's impossible to say. That was pretty dope, though. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for coming on. Hey, good shit. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Bill Podcast.